Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Hello, everyone. This is Ken Root in Washington, D.C. Not only just in Washington, D.C. on the day after Independence Day and all the people were here for the fireworks, but here in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which has been a part of my life for the last 50 years. And it just happened that my son-in-law has a friend that he umpires with who is a member of the staff of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Wayne Connolly, and Stephanie Ho came with him from communications, and Stephanie and I go back to uh, uh, her years with the radio department, so I knew her. But Wayne, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I understand you're a somewhat self-declared historian here for USDA, but you also are doing it in an actual capacity, and we're in a room that I didn't know existed. It is what, the USDA Museum now? Yeah, so it is, uh, I refer to it as USDA Museum. It's something that I started uh, probably a couple years ago. Been here uh, in the building, uh, moved back here in the building about three years ago, and I thought, hey, you know, I had some questions about the history of the building, some of the programs, and some of the earlier people, and I thought, you know, I, I got to reach out and find some answers. So went down, and I looked for the historian's office, and it turns out, long story short, that the last historian died in the 1990s. They never replaced that person, and they closed the shop down. That's the story that I was told. So I said, I, I still have questions. So I, I reached out, and I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm going to start doing the research myself and start to display some of the items that I've collected over the years about agriculture, some of the people, uh, and some of the things I think that are really interesting that stand out that people probably don't even know about. Well, Wayne, we go back in agriculture to the point, I recall, at the Revolutionary War that 90% of the people within the colonies were farmers. So when did agriculture get on the map of the U.S. government? I'd say it happened about 1839, uh, and it happened actually originally in the Patent Office. It was a division started in 1839 under the uh, commissioner, uh, uh, Henry Ellsworth, uh, he was the first commissioner of the patent office, and uh, a number, about 40-50% of the patents come across his desk were agriculture-related because, as you said, most of the people were involved in some type of agriculture. Back then, he thought, you know, he, he needed a separate division to handle this, and so he came up with the idea. Uh, Congress approved and allocated about $1,000, and really, it started off as, uh, as to collect information, to distribute information, but also to collect and distribute seeds uh, to the farmers. And so it started back then, and then it slowly expanded, um, and then there was a number of experimental farms uh, out on the mall that uh, USDA used. In fact, uh, the original building um, that was built in 1867-68 was what was on reservation number two, which was a cattle farm during the Civil War. And so we, over, they, we took that over and became an experimental farm, and that's where the main building was built back then in 1868. Well, backing up just a bit, yeah. during the Civil War, 
when Lincoln was president is when the USDA actually was named a, an official cabinet of the U.S. government. Yes, in 1862. So uh, Lincoln signed into law to creating the, uh, that position, that, uh, and it wasn't really a cabinet position until 1889. Who was the first Secretary of Agriculture? Well, the first secretary, well, back then they called them commissioners. So the first commissioner was Isaac Newton. Not the Isaac Newton. No, no, not, not, Sir, not Sir Isaac Newton. But Isaac Newton was uh, from Pennsylvania, I believe, and uh, was good friends with the Lincolns and became the first uh, commissioner back in 1862 uh, and lasted until about, uh, I'd say, about 1867 when he passed away uh, from a, a heat stroke uh, when he was gathering some experimental wheat on the experimental farm, which was on the mall at that time. Really? Yes, yeah, so he wanders over from uh, his office in the basement of the patent office, and it's about a mile walk. He crosses over the Constitution Avenue, which was the canal at that time, and he's racing over to help the men take the wheat off the field before it's spoiled because of the thunderstorm coming in. And they were imploring him to please take off his jacket, take off his silk hat, and um, eventually he succumbed to the heat, had a heat stroke. He was treated there, but eventually taken home, never recovered, and passed away a few months later. So when I was reading the obit, I thought, what is, a, what is a silk hat? I mean, he kept on saying silk hat, never took off his silk hat. Then I realized it's the top hat, like Lincoln wore a top yeah. hat. So men of, of uh, power, men of uh, prestige wore the top hat back then. He refused to take it off, and they contributed that, that contributed to his, his heat stroke. Wayne, I think what you're doing is amazing here, and for me, with 50 years of background in this, there's a flood of names. You know, the name Ellsworth here, mm -hmm. there's a town in Kansas of that name, and I'll bet mm -hmm. you there's some connection with that. Mm -hmm. uh, Newton is one of the few that people actually don't know, mm -hmm. um, but I was on the board of the Agriculture Hall of Fame in Kansas City, mm -hmm. and they named Newton as one of their uh, members of that Hall of Fame. But as we go through, folks, you'll hear names like Capper, Wallace. This museum, I don't want to undersell it or oversell it. Mm -hmm. It's an office right now. It is. It right is. now. Yes, it's an office. It's actually uh, would have been my boss's office. In yeah. fact, uh, a little funny story. He, he came back here about a couple months ago, and he walks, and he goes, what happened to my office? <laughs> he goes, I'm gone, and it turns into a museum. And you uh, said the secretary is here to see yes, you. That's right. That's right. Um, but he's been very supportive, and we've actually used this to, as an extension of what we do with regard to budget support is to engage employees, make them feel that they're part of something. They come in, they learn something about uh, the history of agriculture, some of the people, some of the noteworthy people, just make them feel like they're part of something. And uh, I think when someone walks away, they say, yeah, I, I learned something today. Yeah. Let's dip backward uh, into your background as well. A lot of the U.S. Department of Agriculture that we know in rural America is based on the agencies that are out there. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, they're there to either regulate the farmers or to uh, encourage the farmers to take new ideas and move them forward. That would be extension. Mm -hmm. But you started in what I think is, was called ASCS at the time, which yes. is now Farm Service Agency. Yes, I started off uh, back in 1988. Uh, it was the Agricultural Stabilization and Conservation Service. Right. And, uh, yeah, over years it kind of uh, morphed into the uh, Farm Service Agency, and now it's, we're kind of part of what they call FPAC. FPAC, okay. Yes. Well, the USDA division that is uh, for rural development has been uh, very key, I think, in the lives of a lot of people from probably 2000 forward mm -hmm. 
on the amount of money that's gone to businesses on farms, mm -hmm. businesses in rural America, to not just help the farmers, but help the communities. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and, I, and I'll, I'll go back in time a little bit, yep. uh, since it's a historical perspective. So I'm going to kind of point over here to this display here, which is the, the Jessup wagon. So that was uh, a, a mobile agricultural school on wheels. Really? And it was started by George Washington Carver out of Tuskegee Institute. So I learned about this, and I said, I want to learn more about this. So I, I found out about the gentleman. The picture there was Campbell. He was the first black extension agent, and uh -huh. he was in charge of this uh, wagon. Jessup Wagon. Let's walk over here to this because this picture is interesting. Oh, it looks like it's got a capability for display in the middle of it where it could pull up somewhere and people could gather around all sides. Yes, exactly. So and it, the, the, the intention was back in 1906 was to reach the, the forgotten, the farmer, the farmer left behind. And that was George Washington Carver's uh, initiative. And, uh, and that is a picture of him that I found online. I thought that was an interesting picture of him. Interesting person, um, just sure. kind of scratching the surface, as you will, just learning more about him. Well, he has a very strong Iowa link. Uh, he was born the child of slaves, mm -hmm. and uh, he wanted to go to college in Missouri, mm -hmm. and they wouldn't let black people go to college in Missouri. Mm -hmm. So they got him to uh, Iowa, mm -hmm. and Simpson College allowed him in mm -hmm. as a student. Mm -hmm. And it just happened to be that uh, there was a man by the name of Henry Wallace, mm -hmm. who was a professor, mm -hmm. and he, he had a son who also became another Henry Wallace, and the Henry Wallace who started Pioneer Seed actually walked the fields with this man when he was a child. Wow. And the Carver Center now mm -hmm. at uh, Pioneer Seed is obviously named after him. Mm -hmm. His work, he was a genius mm -hmm. in being able to look at plants mm -hmm. and see what was good or bad about them and also to breed them mm -hmm. into further generations. Mm -hmm. And he lived his life almost like a monk. Mm -hmm. Uh, he has a great life. If you want to read about it, mm -hmm. um, he really pioneered. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he was a black man and was being denied, yeah. and then they opened it up for him. And the man who opened it up for him went on to be mm -hmm. your Secretary of Agriculture mm -hmm. and Vice President of the United States. Yes, yes, I, I, I do recall reading that. And, uh, and again, if you look around, one of the things I like to do for the museum is just uh, some pictures and some displays and something that's kind of related to the item. So with regard to the Jessup wagon, I don't think the original wagon is in existence. I think parts of it are that were used to recreate a replica back in 1999, which I believe is on display in Beltsville. I'm still trying to confirm that. But one of the things I did is I found online this album here by James Brandon Lewis, who is a jazz musician, plays a, a saxophone. And so I thought that's, that's an interesting thing because it's a concept album, and every song is about George Washington Carver and or the Jessup wagon. So I said, that's incredible. So, and this was done a few, couple years ago. So online, I found him through social media, and I reached out to him. I said, hey, this is incredible. This is a great thing, a concept album about this time period, which a lot of people don't know about. I said, I, I think this is fantastic. And I said, I'm going to hang this. I'm going to hang your LP in the museum, and when you come by one day, you can autograph it for me. And so he responds back saying, is this really Legit, is this, are you really, I said, no, no, I said, this is agriculture, downtown USDA. I said, I have this museum, you got to come by. And so, uh, and actually, uh, I, I, I gave the civil rights people here uh, a tour not too long ago, and, and they were 
they enjoyed it and they really enjoyed this display here where we're going to actually probably reach out to him and maybe he can come and do an event for us. USDA early on was an agency that was going toward electronic communication. Mm -hmm. And the electronic communication of the real early era <coughs> was a basically an album that it cut the record. The record was about four feet across, mm. and it went on this big table. Mm. Now, this is not all an agricultural story, but it yeah. came to me from my friends in the USDA who go back as long as the 1930s. Yeah. Jack Tower was a guy's name who worked in that area, and they gave him one of these to use, yeah. and he was to use it to get uh, speeches from people and extension messages that could then be played again if you move that album somewhere else. Yeah. He was a big fan of jazz. Really? So in the off hours, he took it to the field. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the people that did some of the very early recording of jazz musicians. And after he retired from USDA, he went through a lot of those recordings and cleaned them up because they had a lot of pops and hisses yeah. and things. Yeah. And so he is credited with a great deal of work that preserved the original sound of those people who invented jazz in the United States. Oh, and what's his name again? Jack Tower. Stephanie's writing that down. You know, the connections you can make when you're in a situation like this are wonderful. Hey, Layla, this is my granddaughter. What did George Washington's quote say out there about him being, uh, being a farmer? He would rather be a farmer than, what was it, the ruler of the world or something? He'd rather be a farmer than an emperor of the world. That's a heck of a statement, isn't it? Yeah, I can't say I agree. You can't. But look at the basis of things. The first thing you got to do is have a roof over your head and something to eat before you can s discover yeah. or make anything else. I just don't like to be dirty. Uh, it's not dirty. It's soil, but it's not dirty. Uh, okay, we'll get over that. I'll be back to you later on. The downside to being emperor of the world is that you have to have food tasters taste your food uh, all uh, the time uh. because you don't know who's trying to kill you. So... Being a farmer is better because you grow your own food. You know where it comes from. Yeah, But, you know, the world back when George Washington said that, you, you are correct. Europe was that way. But America was so hands-on of everybody. The relationship people had, I don't think they really thought of that in that period of time. But the, the dangers of, of the world have increased through time. But Washington loved to farm. I mean, if you look at everything about him, he, he was quite an innovative guy. As I understand it, the first of the jacks that came into the U.S. that turned into big mules was George Washington buying these giant jacks and bringing them over and crossing them with horses. And the mule, which was a major part of agriculture in the 19th century, uh, was derived from them, which started with George Washington. Did, I did not know that. Um, that's actually quite interesting. We're innovative people all over, and there and there still are. And you, when did you start here, Stephanie? Um, I started in 2017, January of 2017. What do you think of this place? Is are you still kind of awestruck by how big the U.S. Department of Agriculture is? I I'm actually quite impressed. I think USDA is huge, and I just didn't realize the portfolio of things that it covers. It sort of touches everything, but I think. The very basic thing is that it, it's all about the food that people eat. And um, I just gave a walking tour last week, and I asked everybody, so who eats every day? And it was quite funny because they had never thought about it that way. 
And so, yes, of course, everybody eats every day. And I said, if you eat every day, then USDA is a part of your life, from the food that's produced to the food safety standards to, to everything. And so um, I think USDA is, is quite impressive. It's, it's, a, it's an important part of this country's fabric. It truly is. So my 17-year-old granddaughter is taking us all this in, and you <laughs> can make the judgment yourself. But I still say that if we didn't have food to eat, and a roof over our head, nothing else would get done. Okay, I revoke my previous statement. I would rather be a farmer. <laughs> yeah, you're lying to me now. <clears throat> All right, back with Wayne walking into another office of the museum. So I, I got my research stuff down here, and I come in here, and I up on my big whiteboard here, I, I have things that, I, that I'm working on, things that I've kind of confirmed, and, uh, and kind of a work in progress. And... One of the things I like to show people is the, this picture here of Howard Green. So this is going back to 1926 when he invented, now he was a scientist, worked here at agriculture in the film lab, and he created the stop action motion picture camera. And it was used to take pictures of like decay and growth of flowers and so mm -hmm. forth. And you can see the size of this machine here. Yeah. It's the size of a small fridge. And so one of the first things I did when I came back and learned about this, I said, where is this machine? I got to find it. I mean, it's it's Americana, it's USDA, it's important. Crawling up in the attic, crawling down the basement, talking to everyone, even the archives, even uh, Smithsonian. No one's even either heard of it or don't they don't know where it is. So I thought, well, what about the family? So he died in 1930, and so I built a family tree, and I reached out to his granddaughter, his great granddaughter, and we've been communicating by email exchanging some information and I was just kind of confirming like you know any chances is in your basement and they they heard of the machine but they have not seen it they don't know where it is uh, but they were very nice uh, and and really nice to talk to in fact her uh, dad had just recently passed and he would have been tickled that someone from USA had reached out remembered Howard Green and just kind of wanted to know more about him and you know he's a prolific inventor and scientist and so uh, she sent me links to articles of uh, things and so one of the magazines I bought is over there. It's got a, an article about the outboard gasoline motor that he wrote about uh, back oh. in the day. So I wanted to see it. I, a link is one thing, but I want to hold the actual document. An outboard motor, I mean, yes. you could put it on a boat. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, And I've collected uh, um, the annual yearbooks that USDA sure. puts out. Those so, big deal. Yeah, so the, the, the harder ones in the 1840s are, are difficult to come by, but I've collected a number of them over the years. And then, uh, and I have friends in the building, not only like Stephanie, but we have mutual stuff. And this is kind of interesting here. This, I found this online, and this was uh, kind of like the resettlement administration program. Wasn't really popular back in the day, but you would take a, a family, a, a farming family off a, a land that was not performing well, and you relocate them to a, a better suited place. Well, this plays into my life, because I'm an Okie. Mm -hmm. And the era of plowing up the land um, was already going on because they just moved west, you know. They just plowed up more land. Go west, young man, you know, the statement was made. Mm -hmm. And they kept moving west, but they did the worst damage in the plains because the soil was so uh, easy to blow away or wash away. Mm -hmm. And the picture you show here of people, you know, in the door mm -hmm. of a worn-out place, mm -hmm. uh, it's really, <laughs> compared to Dorothea Lang, it's not much. Mm -hmm. But it is uh, truly an example of what happens mm -hmm. if you don't treat your land right, your land won't treat you right. Mm -hmm. So how do you know what to do? Because my father always said, poor folks have poor ways. Mm -hmm. So you just farm it until you can't farm it anymore. Mm -hmm. 
USDA came in mm -hmm. and told them how they could conserve the soil, mm -hmm. how they could replenish the soil, how they could change and rotate crops. Mm -hmm. All that came from your department. Mm -hmm. That's probably, to me, the greatest value that USDA has had mm -hmm. is redirecting farmers mm -hmm. from ruining the land mm -hmm. to be able to utilize the land mm -hmm. um, in perpetuity. Yes, I, I, I agree. Yeah. It's, uh, and it, the, the poster struck me as something that's uh, kind of sad, but uh, kind of unique in such a way. And then ASCS eventually descends from mm -hmm. this program here. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and well, that's my, the first farm broadcaster I worked for saw the first dust storm hmm. come through western Oklahoma when he was a young county uh, soil conservation agent. Hmm. And he said it was a black blizzard, hmm. and he said it moved slow hmm. and just covered you up. Okay. And he said it was astonishing. He saw that in about 1934. Hmm. And from that point on, he said, you know, things were never the same. Hmm. And they went through more drought in that whole Plains region mm -hmm. between then and the end of the 30s, but they got a handle on how to conserve the soil mm -hmm. and leave the vegetation all the way through rather than just turning it upside down. Mm -hmm. And that made a big difference coming into the 1940s mm -hmm. when they had enough money to put some inputs into it and produce crops. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, president of Concept Hearing. Taylor, I've worn hearing aids from your company for almost 20 years with excellent results. But I have a question today. It is that medications that we take, do they sometimes contribute to hearing loss? Great question, and yes, there are. There are over 200 prescribed or over-the-counter medications that can attribute to hearing loss. 72% of people over the age of 55 take at least one drug. Two-thirds of all drug reaction, adverse drug reactions, occur over the age of 60. So you're talking almost three-quarters of the you know, population over 55 take at least one drug or one medication. You know, we're talking simple drugs from an aspirin regimen. An aspirin regimen, and we're not talking baby aspirin, we're talking regular size aspirin. If you take an aspirin regimen um, five days a week or more, you have an increased risk of hearing loss by 26%. Some of the big ones are diuretics, so people that have uh, high blood pressure, kidney disease, like the myosin group, you know, erythromycin, vancomycin, that whole myosin group um, can attribute to hearing loss. Um, hydrocodone, oxycotton, um, Rush Limbaugh is the famous one for that because he, you know, got addicted to the oxycotton and that caused his hearing loss. Then he had to get a cochlear implant. So, you know, and, and he was very honest at, you know, toward the end about what, you know, what caused that chemotherapy drugs. So if anyone has gone through chemotherapy, chemotherapy wreaks havoc, not only on your body, but on your hearing as well. Um, you know, the little blue pill can attribute to hearing loss. So there are, you know, many different, uh, you know, medications, whether they're over the counter prescribed, um, that can attribute to hearing loss. So the best thing to do is, is, you know, get with your doctor and the pharmacist to find out what the side effects are. If there are other medications, maybe where, certain um, certain side effects are less with one versus another. And it's just having that open dialogue, you know, with your with your providers to really understand are there, you know, ramifications for the medications I'm taking. And sometimes there's just, you know, there, there's no other choice but to take the medication, just understanding um, that it can attribute to hearing loss and, and it's something you need to monitor. Thank you, Taylor. 
Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing by calling 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. I'm back with Wayne Connolly, who is a historian for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, also works in other capacity as well. Stephanie Ho from Communications uh, joined us a little earlier, and even my granddaughter, Layla Genty, and I were arguing about the importance of food and how agriculture drives our economy. You have had a number of people in USDA, Wayne, who have begun a change in our society or have discovered things that we have utilized, uh, and uh, quite a few of them are women. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting because, um, for example, um, we're standing in front of this display here, and, and how it really came about, and this is about Dorothy Nickerson, uh, and she was the very first um, optical physicist. She was born in 1900, died in 1985, and she was a what? She was the only woman color expert in the government. So she was an optical physicist, a uh, color scientist, and she was the very first one, and she worked here at USDA. And the reason I kind of learned about this is that I have a, another friend in the building who, uh, going through some old offices, cleaning out some old offices, he came across these boxes, and these are boxes of cotton mm -hmm. at different uh, grades. Mm -hmm. And he goes, I don't want to throw these out. He goes, I actually found these in a dumpster. He goes, can we save them? I said, absolutely, let's preserve this and let's learn more about this. And so I said, I actually remember seeing a picture of something like this before when I was going through some old pictures. And it was a picture of this woman sitting here. I didn't know much about it. And it's actually Dorothy Nickerson later on. And you can actually see the box is upright. And she's actually looking through it, and she's grading the quality, the whiteness of it. Right. And I thought, that's interesting. So I go online, and I find this old picture of her. This is when she first started. Yes. Yeah, so this is 1928, actually. 28, okay. Yeah, and this is when she first started working here. So 1927, this is 28. And, it, and, and it's interesting to go in the back. It's handwritten about her. It's the only woman color expert in the government service who advises colored discs, and I thought, this is incredible. So this is actually how yep. it kind of come about. And one of the things that she invented was here is the, the color dial. So there's 262 hues uh, of color on this fan, almost like a fan you would find mm -hmm. at a paint store. Yeah. That was created here. She created that here as a, as a tool to help you know, grade certain hues of color. Well, the cotton industry lived off of being able to tell the quality by measuring the length, the staple length, uh, and then the quality of that fiber, and part of it had to do with the color of that fiber. So it all, it all fits together. The Yearbook of Agriculture, it's been published for a long, long time, hasn't it? Yes, I, I probably around the, I would say the first ones are early 1840s. Yep. And what it, what it was was information. Again, it's all about information, educating the farmer. And so it became very popular. So thousands of these books were printed over over the years and distributed to farmers and uh, congressmen and people uh, in the industry. And they became a very uh, powerful tool a lot of information, uh, and, and other farmers will learn what was working where and how it was working and, and, and how uh, the value of it, too. They were learning the values because all that was being shared into one book. So what I've done over the, over the past few years is I've collected a series of different books from different time periods. So I have my earliest ones, probably 1859, but I also have one from 1861, which was the last year it was the, uh, uh, 
the division of the Patent Office. Right. I have the 1862 book when it was the first year of agriculture, and I have the 1889 book when it became the department, a cabinet-level position. Wow. So and it's great information. Now, you had another gentleman you were telling me about that, uh, oh, was a baseball pitcher. Yes. I love that story. Can so we find that yeah. picture? I kind of come across this by accident because back back in the day the the department for social things would do they would have an amateur baseball team they would have an archery team they would have a rowing team um, and one of the things they did here when they built the the federal movie theater and that was in 1934 they had an actors and musicians guild 500 members they were all employees here and they would perform in fact i think the performance was back in march of 1934 and um it was called oh it's on the tip of my tongue I forget the name of the first production, but this was a big thing back then. This is entertainment. This is how people came involved, to be able to, to work with each other and socialize with each other. And one of the things I learned is about the uh, the baseball team. We had a, a department league, so the departments would compete against other departments, commerce, navy, uh, and then we had our own team. They were either called the Aggies or the Farmers back in the day. They won a championship, and they would play on White's Field. And I thought... Where's White's Field? I'm a baseball fan. I, I got to find out where White's Field is. It turns out that it's the South Lawn uh, of the uh, White House. So it was called White's Field. So, and actually, it was laid out by Teddy Roosevelt in 1904. So he laid out the baseball diamonds south of the White House. And this is where these teams participated and played. And one of the players that they tried to recruit was Noodles Hahn. So Noodles Hahn. Noodles Hahn. So Noodle Han, Noodle Han was a pitcher with Cincinnati Reds, great pitcher, lefty, uh, but he knew at some time that his arm would fail him. So he had the wherewithal to go to school. And so in Cincinnati, he put himself through a veterinary school to become a surgeon. And so in 1906, when his arm failed him, he became a meat inspector for USDA. Now the funny thing is, is he stayed in Cincinnati, and up until he was about 70 years old, he would always throw batting practice for the Cincinnati Reds when they were in town. And so the Aggies, or our amateur team, tried to recruit him to transfer to the department here so they could use him for the baseball team. A ringer, a ringer. That are, now, he had quite a reputation, though. He really made a mark on baseball. Yeah, one of the things that I've learned that's been written about him is uh, he was the last pitcher to throw a no-hitter in the 19th century and the first pitcher to throw a no-hitter in the 20th century, which I thought was kind of interesting, kind of fascinating, that uh, a, a unique uh, stat for, for a baseball player and a meat inspector. If anybody wanted to have a, a one that would surely stump people, here's a baseball card of him from 1900, Noodles Hahn, H-A-H-N, mm -hmm. and had that history. And, and uh, his nickname, Noodles, is because as a child, his mom would send him to his dad's factory with a pail filled with hot noodles. And all the men would give him a hard time. Here's his little kid delivering his dad noodles, and they called him noodles, and it stuck for him for the rest of his life. Wayne, let's turn to the secretaries of agriculture. Now, in my lifetime, or my professional career, I have met um, every secretary of agriculture, and I have to say that I was even on a first-name basis with some of them, which was a thrill to me, to say the least. I knew of Earl Butts, uh, and when I first became a farm broadcaster, my boss was on the first name with basis with Earl, and he had even sent him a pocket knife uh, with some instructions for uh, surgically removing parts of liberals. And it was okay at the time. It's a little blushing now. 
But uh, Butts always remembered that and carried the pocket knife. But when I first knew of him, uh, he was a, a ag economist of great reputation from Purdue, but he just couldn't keep his mouth shut, and he made a couple of major foopaws, and it got him fired. But he was the Secretary of Agriculture during the greatest growth period that modern agriculture ever saw. In fact, I say that in 1972, when the Russians came in to buy grain, and Butts was Secretary of Agriculture in the uh, Nixon administration. It was the most go-go years ever. And Secretary Butts had one slogan, whether he said it or not, he's credited with it, plant fence row to fence row. But you didn't have to tell farmers to do that when the prices of everything they were growing was going up. But from that point on, you've kept a pretty good collection here of all of these guys from that point to today. Yeah, and it, you know, it started with, uh, again, my interest in the, the, the history of these uh, secretaries and commissioners. Um, because when you're over in the patio in the main building, the wooden building, there's, there's these portraits of these secretaries around the patio. Um, and when they retire and move on, there's a, an official portrait done of them and it's a big ceremony. But my, uh, from someone who's asking questions, it's like, I, there's only a picture. There's nothing about the person. So I, what I've done is I've taken pictures of the portraits and I've created a display uh, of them, but some background information uh, about them, a bio, um, something unique. And then again, I like to collect something from them. So I like to collect autographs. So I've got John Block's autograph on, on his card. I got uh, Earl Butts. You mentioned Earl Butts. I have his, his autograph as well. And then I just recently uh, came across uh, Secretary um, uh, Houston's uh, memoir that is autographed by him and that's going back to a time when he was with the White House or with the Wilson cabinet back in 1913 to 1920 so I, li I like to do that I like to collect certain things uh, kind of put in perspective. A number of these ag secretaries would have a, a singular thing that would happen in their administration and uh, John Block uh, came in at a time when uh, the Reagan administration was encouraging world trade and so he really ran all over the world. He was a marathoner at the time. And uh, he really recruited other countries to buy American ag products, which helped American farmers greatly. Uh, however, during that period, uh, many of these people didn't have enough money to buy as much as we could produce. Farmers are notorious for overproducing, so they were growing for a market in the 1970s that did not expand in the 1980s. And we had payment in kind, and we had other things with the block era, but I think the major thing of his administration was the first modern farm bill mm -hmm. came out in uh, John Block's period, mm -hmm. and it was written in the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and from then on, uh, Dick Ling followed him, who was from California uh, in the Reagan era, and then we kept having a farm bill every five years mm -hmm. and moving us forward in time. And I do, like you, love to go through those pictures downstairs of the secretaries and remember the era that they had and, and their service. Uh, Ann Veneman was the first woman to serve as Secretary of Agriculture. Uh, and so from that point on, uh, it was pretty much wide open. There was no glass ceiling anymore. And some of the agencies that we have today were originated under future Secretaries of Agriculture. And the man who's there now, uh, Tom Vilsack, Will, is he or will he be the longest-serving Secretary of Agriculture in history? 
Well, um, I, I know there's some discussion about that if he continues on through, uh, for example, if uh, President Biden is reelected, uh, if, uh, if Vilsack, if Secretary Vilsack would continue on, uh, that would give him uh, 16 years total in days. Now, James Wilson actually holds the record of 16 years all consecutive, serving under three different presidents. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think the, the Wilson Arch is named after James Wilson. Uh, and he was also credit bringing the uh, farming into the 20th century. I guess uh, James Wilson, Secretary Wilson's thing was it's one thing to tell them what to do, but it's another thing to show them what to do. So it became a very demonstrative type uh, secretary. But I think um, Secretary Vilsack would need a little help to, uh, to, to break that record. Uh, for a number of days, uh, because there was a there, there's a there's a 38 day window there. So if he goes another term uh, under Biden, if Biden is reelected, uh, he he would need a little help if there was a Democrat to follow that administration, because uh, he'd be about 38 days short. If he has a friend coming in, maybe he says, "Hey, we'll give you 40 more days," and then boom, he he breaks the the total number of days record. So we'll see how that one goes. But but you go back to uh, Capper, uh, he was a Secretary of Agriculture in the uh, 19th century, and then Capper's Weekly uh, was from his production uh, as a farm publication. You go to Wallace, and you would Wallace's Farmer was another publication, okay. and you look at these people, and they vaulted from their secretary job in many cases to something else. And of course, Wallace went on to be. Vice President of the United States. So tremendous history of these people who were Secretaries of Agriculture. A and still today, we always are very interested in who's going to get that job. Uh, some people come out of nowhere, like Sonny Perdue, mm -hmm. uh, but other people are highly predictable that they're going to get that job, like Ed Madigan, uh, or uh, in the case of uh, uh, John Block, he also was unpredicted because he was a farmer in Illinois. Uh, and now you're going to more governors, it appears, mm -hmm. that already have an ability to administer in a state, and they want to do something at the federal level. Uh, Wayne Conlon, let me finish up with you. First of all, thank you for showing me everything that you have here. We don't have this in what I think should be its final state, and apparently you've got enough room in this uh, building now <laughs> that you can do so. No, this is great, and I'm, Ken, I'm, I'm learning so much from you. I really appreciate this. It's like... It's like I should be interviewing you about some of these folks here. I've learned so much just from uh, listening to you talk, and uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. And I pass a lot of this down from people who couldn't wait to tell it to me back when I wasn't sure I wanted to hear it. Uh, and now here we are. Yeah. And, that's, and really, that's the, that's the gist behind all of this right here, especially with the museum, is just to pass information and share stories and anecdotes, yeah. because there's a lot of things that people don't know. And, uh, and so with some of the... Uh, articles that Stephanie had just written not too long ago about the museum. I have people reaching out saying, this is great. I want to come by and take a look at it. And they're starting to share stories about what they do. It's like, I never knew that we had archaeologists working for the Forest Service. So it's like, I was like, that's incredible. What, what does that mean? What do you do? So uh, things like that. So I, yeah, it's great to share information and, and, and stories. I would have to say that we did not touch on what I consider the greatest program that was ever put out, and that was the Rural Electrification Administration. Mm -hmm. REA in the 1930s mm -hmm. electrified rural America with government funds because mm -hmm. the people in the cities got electricity mm -hmm. 
beginning, you know, in the 1890s to 1900, but they wouldn't reach out past the city limits because it wasn't worth the money to run power poles that far. Mm -hmm. And REA did that. Mm -hmm. And that totally changed the work load of people who could then use electric machines in rural America and made a huge difference. Well, Wayne, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Stephanie, would you like to add anything? I, I just wanted to add something about the rural electrification thing that you just mentioned. Um, that's one of the things that USDA is doing right now. We have a reconnect program, and the effort is aimed at bringing broadband internet connectivity to the entire country, because I know there are a lot of rural areas in the country that don't have broadband. That is the same, perhaps, as electricity was when the rural electric um, effort went into place, and so now the effort is aimed at bringing broadband and internet connectivity to people, to everybody. I pulled this from a, an office that they were going to toss this out, and I thought, this is a beautiful picture. Electricity comes to the farm in 1941, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's an interesting picture, but things like this are being tossed out, yep. and these are the type of things that we're trying to save and preserve for a historical purpose. And I do believe a gentleman stopped here two weeks ago and said this was REA's office. These offices here were part of rural development right. REA. So it's kind of ironic that we're talking about this and kind of ending on this note that this is kind of where they sat. And they said, this was the secretary's office. This was a division director's office. This was a branch chief's office. And I said, wow, that's really, I never, I never knew that. So there was a connection uh, there. Well, let me say to you a message from my mother. And that would be a woman of the 1930s. She was glad to have rural electrification at $3 a month. And so we would like to have broadband at the same price. Okay, let me see what I can do. No, just kidding. I, I don't have any control over that. But, you know, I... I times, have, times have changed. Thank you both very much. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.